0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of the channel. And today I'm talking to Emma Sutton about her fabulous new book, William James, M.D., Philosopher, Psychologist, Physician, which is just published by the University of Chicago Press in 2023. Um, and um, changed everything that I thought I knew about William James in a good way. So, um, Emma, welcome to the show. Hi, Claire. Um, thank you so much
1: for inviting me on to speak about my book.
0: <laughs> well, um, I'm, I'm just thrilled to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit about um, yourself
1: and how you became interested in William James? Sure. Um, Well, I'm currently an honorary research fellow at Queen Mary University of London, and I'm a historian of medicine and psychology. Um, But my career path has not been a particularly conventional one for an academic. Um, As an undergrad, I thought I wanted to be a physicist. So I spent most of my university years studying the physical sciences and a lot of maths. But luckily, I was at Cambridge University, where my course was much broader than it would have been at almost any other UK university. So when I realized that me and physics were no longer (laughs) a really good fit, I was able to um, spend my last year studying the history, philosophy, and sociology of science, which was just an incredibly exciting experience uh, for me, and really opened my mind to a whole different way uh, of thinking about what science is and how it works. but I then left uh, the academic world and spent 10 years working at the BBC, um, making factual documentaries, mainly science and medicine-based. And a lot of what I did um, during that time was observational filmmaking within the medical world. So I was in A&E and out on the ambulances with paramedics. Um, and for one film, we followed the work of a liver transplant unit, um, putting the spotlight on the ethical decision-making that goes on in that field and I got to the stage where I guess I really wanted to take some of these on-the-ground observations of medical practice and go back to the academic world and explore uh, the field of medicines sort of using some of those humanities-based perspectives um, that I'd started to learn about as an undergrad. So Luckily, I was um, able to secure some funding to do an MA in the history of medicine at University College London. And that's where I met William James for the first time. Um, Although I think we did later cover him in one of our courses. I actually first stumbled across him in the form of a reference um, to his principles of psychology uh, in Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. Um, I don't know if you've read it, but um, a couple of the characters own copies of this, uh, this book. And it just really intrigued me that an academic textbook um, could occupy this place in, in American culture, um, that at least from Steinbeck's perspective, it had become a work that was uh, one that was like, read and treasured uh, by ordinary people whose, I guess, whose lives were a long way away from the sort of Harvard lecture theatres. Um, As so I mentioned to my supervisor, uh, who's a young scholar, that's Sonu Shamthasani um, at UCL, Uh, that I was interested in finding out more about James. And he was really enthusiastic and and really encouraged me to go for it. Um, And as someone who works biographically himself, uh, he was just a really inspiring teacher for me and totally understood my desire to go really deeply into one person. Um, And because he worked on Carl Jung, who was um, obviously a psychological contemporary of James. Uh, he was really brilliantly equipped as well to sort of help me orientate myself um, in James's intellectual world. So he basically said sort of, you know, he advised me to start with James's varieties of religious experience, um, which I think was a really good steer. And he pointed me in the direction of the 12 volumes of his um, published letters and said, off you go. Um, And that's how it all began, really. So I started with what was just an essay on James, and then that grew into an MA dissertation. And then that grew into a PhD thesis. Um, And then later on, I um, moved to the Centre for the History of the Emotions at Queen Mary University of London, um, where I worked with a whole load of great people, including Thomas Dixon, who was the original director of that centre. And during my time there, I was really able to develop my thinking about um, certain aspects of my interpretation of James, especially those areas dealing with um, his religious beliefs uh, and the emotional elements um, of the material in the book. And then eventually, many years on, it's all come together (laughs) into the book.
0: Well, it's a wonderful book. So I'm I'm not a William James scholar. I'm just sort of a long time enthusiastic fan. Um, And part of what I always I found inspiring about him is the kind of accepted biographical narrative, and that is that he overcame this kind of spiritual and mental health crisis in his young adulthood, and then he goes, then that he he, he went on to achieve kind of like self actualization as a transdisciplinary thinker. Um, can you tell me more about what has been written about William James's biography so far? and then um, the contributions that your research makes? Sure, yes. So
1: I think the, um, the accepted biographical narrative for James tends to be the one that you laid out there, which is more or less the same one um, laid down by his first official biographer, Ralph Barton Perry. Um, and it's this idea that in his early adulthood um, he underwent what Perry characterized as a spiritual crisis but he then came out the other side uh, effectively recovered and with a philosophy that could accommodate both religious and scientific belief systems um, and to use Perry's words a philosophy that he could live by and although sort of since then some biographers have analyzed this sort of crisis period using other kinds of frameworks so for example um, Freudian psychology um, interpreting James's psychological distress in terms of repressed sexual longings, or they've um, interpreted his experiences using modern psychiatric diagnoses like bipolar disorder. But on the whole, the sort of overarching narrative remains very similar. So a a troubled youth and then a mature, fully formed thinker emerges like, like a butterfly from a cocoon. And I think for me, this narrative is is a little problematic, Um, not because I don't agree that that period was really significant for James, because I do, but I guess for me, it's just the beginning of the story. Um, And I argue that James did not feel that his struggles ended in the 1870s. Uh, And this is really clear in his letters. He conceived of himself um, as an invalid throughout his life and was acutely conscious of the impact of his ill health, on his life and his family and his ability to contribute to society. And I think partly for this reason, his personal life and his professional life were always profoundly and inextricably linked. Um, from my perspective, James, um, his philosophical and his psychological work kind of never became a sort of lofty, abstract intellectual pursuit Um it was always right up to the end, an intensely passionate engagement with the, the business of living. And um, it's that sense of his writings as a form of personal engagement with the world. Uh, that's what I try and explore in, in the book. Um, and then the other main way in which my analysis departs from the more conventional version of James is that I don't believe that there is sort of one essential, mature James. Um, Rather, there are lots of Jameses, I believe, because he he just didn't stay still as a thinker. Um, He was always on the move, and that's one of the things I like about him is that he's really honest about those intellectual transitions and changes of heart. Uh, He actually sort of flags them up um, and explicitly discusses them in various places. But I think sometimes this quite radically dynamic element of his work gets a bit lost because he uses the same words like science or religion or God over the course of his career but his own kind of working conceptualizations of these words changes so you're going to miss some of the movement in his ideas unless you're sort of super alert to his use of language Um, and I guess that's where I feel I come in as a historian is hopefully by trying to help pin down some of those changing definitions I can sort of help flesh out the detail of his work a little
0: It's so illuminating, um, your work. And uh, you mentioned that when you were first getting started, you read all of, you began, um, by uh, one of the first things you read was, um, all of his letters. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about, um, the research that went into this book, which has, um, obviously been a long time in the making, but did, did you do archival research? Um, did you read everything he ever wrote? Um, tell, tell us about the research process.
1: Well, I would be lying um, if I said I had read every single word he ever wrote. Uh, but I think I came pretty close. Um, I did read all the published correspondence, which is 12 large volumes. They literally take up a whole shelf on, on the library that I did most of my research in. Um, and that's, that's approximately sort of nine and a half thousand letters, um, as well as a range of unpublished archival letters, either ones that were to or from James that hadn't been published in full in the edited correspondence for some reason, one reason or another. Um, or ones that were between other people but about James so they were also useful some of those um, and I have to say that my experience of reading those unpublished archival letters made me very very grateful to the editors of the collected correspondence. Um, I don't know if you in your work or if you've ever tried to decipher a 19th century letter I can share that it it, it is not easy um not so much the handwriting, which is generally like really regular and beautiful and much like nicer than mine. Um, but the way that many of the the letters I read, the sender had written kind of one way across the paper and then they had turned it 90 degrees and written like that way across it as well, on top of the original words. Um, so apparently this was quite common then during the 19th century because it was a way to save money on paper and postage. But it does make things quite difficult. Um and then moving on from the letters, I also read James's diaries. So there's a relatively well-known one from his early adulthood. But I also went through his his later life um, diaries, which are kind of less interesting in some ways because there's less kind of actual prose in them. But they... They do have um, a record, which is really useful for me, um, of all his visits to various uh, mind curers or lay mental healers. So I was able to kind of reconstruct his pattern of visits um, to those unorthodox healers. Um, and I also read the notes he made for various lectures, um, because not all of his lectures were published, uh, you're in full, um, and many of his book reviews, short essays, articles, uh, as well as obviously the longer published texts that lots of people know about. And I think for me, um, these smaller sources, so the letters, the book reviews, the essays, etc., they they were really important um, from a kind of methodological perspective. They were really vital um, in my aim to kind of reconstruct this changing nature of his ideas that like i talked about before because um, his major works come out on a relatively slow kind of you know year by year type of time scale um but he wrote essays book reviews much more frequently and letters were often written daily um so these sources provide like a whole level level of detail which was really valuable to me uh the letters i think especially also contain like you could you could say they're less polished examples of his philosophical thinking but uh this rawness is also a strength in in my view because i feel like in these less guarded moments um i feel as if he's gives away more sometimes about the underlying motivation behind his pursuing certain topics and his emotional reaction to events and ideas so all this enabled me to get sort of more of a handle on why particular questions and lines of investigation mattered to him why he returned to them um, and then, sorry, one last thing <laughs> before it is, I've uh, going on a bit, I know. Uh, I also read um, various notebooks, including his Index Rare Room, which is basically a sort of alphabetized record of his reading over many years. Um, so I could then go and read the books that he was reading on various topics and get a feel for which topics were important to him. Uh, and then the last thing I did was I um, actually went hunting through the bookshelves of the Harvard libraries looking for books that had come from his personal library, um, and which had his nameplate in the front. And these often had like various forms of marginalia and notes written in his hand. Uh, and there was just something really special about reading James's own copies of particular texts and trying to work out you know, why he'd marked this section or that section and um, what the book's significance was for him.
0: Well, what I was going to say, and thank you for, for adding that about actually handling his own, the books from his own library. That is, that's um, amazing. And um, I think historians would share that um, little um you know, a uh, thrill of delight um, in thinking about um, encountering the, the sources of uh, the people that we study. Um, but what it re- the result in the book is a very dynamic book so that, you know, it, it the feeling of reading it is you can really f- uh, uh, you you really get the sense that uh, James is working through his ideas um, and um, you put together, you know, things like published book reviews with um, his more canonical writings in a really dynamic way that is um, very compelling to read. Um, Thank you. The, uh, William James, M.D., is organized um, the the book overall. I'd like to talk a little bit how it's how it's it's organized. Um, it's organized thematically rather than chronologically, um, even though it is uh, it it is biographical. Um, can you give us an overview of of the themes each chapter addresses? So to kind of
1: give us an an overview of the book, if you could. Sure. Yes. So. Um... Chapter one, uh, which I call Misery in Metaphysics, I go over what has come to be known as James's crisis period in his early adulthood, but I foreground elements of this period that haven't been looked at before. So so rather than imposing any of our modern diagnoses on him, I try and look at how James talked about this period in his life, um, his self-diagnoses and the words and concepts that he used to make sense of what was happening to him. So from James's perspective, his his main issue during this period was um, a debilitating back condition that significantly impacted his life and career. And then philosophically, what emerges in my study of this period is that James became very focused on the concept of evil during this time. And it's clear from his letters and personal notes that these two things were linked. So essentially, he came to closely identify the category of evil uh, with illness and pain. And because Ill and evil is a key part of many of James's later writings, um, this observation is, I, mean, I think, really important to how we read James. Um, and then in this chapter, I, I also look at um, how his experiences of illness shaped his approach to other philosophical topics, such as the mind-body problem uh, and the free will debate, amongst others. Um, and then in chapter two, which is called Health and Hygiene, I look at how important uh, the ideal of health was to James, as it was to many of his contemporaries. He was very persuaded by the hygienic morality of the time. Um, And although we've sort of come to associate the term hygiene with cleanliness now, uh, in the 19th century, it covered a much wider range of everyday activities, um, all aimed at preventing disease and restoring the body to what was regarded as its natural state of health. So I've described it as a morality, um, and that's a reflection of the language and the framing used at the time. So many authors presented it as a moral duty to follow what were known as the laws of health. Um, And to disregard these laws was described as a sin or a crime. Um, So some of James's first lectures at Harvard were on physiology and hygiene but I make the case in this chapter that his own very fervent belief in in health as an ideal um, also shaped some of his best-known writings such as his work on habits, uh, the emotions and his talks to teachers lectures which were about how psychology can be applied to the classroom. Um, In chapter three which is called Religion and Regeneration I examine one of the major transformations in James's thinking, which was about the relationship between science and religion, uh, which occurred during the 1880s and early 1890s. And I basically root this transformation in his interest in health and healing. So I argue that uh, during this period, James moved from a more orthodox uh, position where physiological research um, represented the only path towards healing truth, medical truth, uh, towards a much more broad minded approach um, later on, which involved mental and spiritual healing modalities. So during these years, uh, he started contributing to the field of psychical research, uh, which involved uh, research into topics such as hypnotism, um, spiritualist mediums and telepathy. and he also visited various lay mental healers himself, like I mentioned earlier uh, in the effort to get relief from his own symptoms. Um, and he also became very interested in the work of a French researcher Pierre Janet who published a really innovative work on the concept of the subconscious or hidden self and its role in the etiology of disease. So all of that is part of this chapter, chapter three. Your brain needs support. And new
0: Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or
1: prevent any disease.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Then chapter four is
1: called Energy and Endurance. And I try and tease out... James's understanding of God. So, so, what did the notion of God actually mean to him? What was the nature of his relationship with God? And how did this change during his lifetime? So, I look particularly at how the concepts of sickness and health were really fundamental to his religious worldview, or religious worldviews, plural. Um, and I look at the role of energy and how for James it mediated between these two domains between the domain of health and the domain of God. So I spend quite a lot of time tracing some of these themes in his varieties of religious experience lectures, as you might suspect. But I also link uh, them to other texts such as his Energies of Men address um, and his essay on the moral equivalent of war. And then finally, in Chapter five, which is called Politics and Pathology, I explore the idea that we can characterize James's politics um, as a politics of pathology. So I argue that if we look at James's work in the context of the medical ideology at the time, a very significant political dimension becomes apparent that has previously been overlooked. So I make the case that in the last two decades of his career, um, James became very outspoken about a host of issues that impacted those within society who were considered to be invalids, infirm or mentally diseased. And this included his very active support for and participation in uh, Clifford Beard's mental hygiene movement. So for those, I think some people may know the mental hygiene movement, um, because it became a very large international movement later on. But it began with Clifford Beard's right at the beginning of the of the 20th century. Um, and, we, and the campaign was largely to, at that point, especially to improve the conditions and treatment of those confined in the lunatic asylums, as they were known then. Um, and it also... In this chapter, as well as the Clifford Beers campaign, I um, look at James's own lectures on abnormal psychology, where he took issue with the stigmatisation associated with mental pathology and tried to reframe how we think about mental health as a concept.
0: One theme that ran through the book for me um, was this question of eugenics. And I had always thought of William James as being a thinker that sort of stood up in opposition to that type of thinking. But um, your book showed me that it, the, it, 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 the story is a little more complicated than that. And I wondered if you could tell us um, what is eugenics and then how does William James's work relate to it?
1: Yes, I agree. It's, like, it's compli- I think both of those are complicated questions. Um, I've carried on studying eugenics a bit now in my later project, which, but I think both what is eugenics and how does it relate to James are complicated questions to do justice to, but also really pertinent to the book as you point out. So I'll I'll just do my best. Um. Eugenics as a term was coined during James's lifetime in 1883 by the British researcher Francis Galton. So he derived it from a Greek word meaning well-born or good stock. And it was intended to describe a program of investigations into how to improve the stock of the human race, which meant for him and his associates, you know, how to encourage the fit to have more children and by various means discouraging the unfit. And of course, straight away, it's obvious that this notion of fitness or human superiority is a profoundly problematic and contingent idea. Um, And indeed, much of the scholarship on eugenics examines the class based racist and ableist assumptions that were built into the eugenic theories um, that were put into practice across a wide range of countries because eugenics was an international phenomenon. Um, A lot of this work has focused on the 20th century. Uh, So for many people, I think eugenics is synonymous with, in America, various state programs of enforced sterilization, and then in Europe, the Nazi atrocities. But what I think is um, possibly less well-known is the earlier history of eugenic ideas. Uh, And the roots of these ideas uh, stretch back a long time before Galton even came up with this term. Um, In Britain and America, there were medical theories about the hereditary nature of various conditions and illnesses and concerns, um, active concerns about what was referred to as prudent or imprudent marriage decisions and their reproductive consequences. So these concerns were quite widespread. But later, with the publication and popularisation of Darwinian ideas, These concerns about marriage and reproduction became linked not just to the fate of individual families and lineages, but to the race as a whole. So they acquired a kind of new social weight and level of of scrutiny. And this is where James comes in. Um, He had trained as a doctor and was very well versed in this medical knowledge. And in his early adulthood, he firmly supported the idea that it would be ethically wrong for some individuals to marry and have children together because of the likelihood of their children inheriting their medical problems. So we can see this attitude in various letters uh, and a book review that he wrote during the 1860s and 70s. Um, So for example, he wrote to his own brother, Bob, strongly advising him against marrying a woman who suffered from the same sort of um, family back problems that he did. And James himself deliberated for two years about whether or not he should marry his future wife, Alice, uh, and his Correspondence with her indicates that one of his main scruples was this issue of him passing on his own medical problems and the the pain and suffering he had endured to the next generation. But he also wrote a a favourable book review of a text by a British alienist, so we would call them psychiatrists these days, um, Henry Maudsley, uh, who called attention to the importance of right breeding in reducing the cases of insanity in society. But James um, did object to the idea that any coercive action, uh, such as legislation, was necessary. Uh, He preferred to trust in public education to achieve what he thought were these important aims. Um, But later in life, though, I think James's public stance towards Henry Maudsley uh, specifically and figures like him changed significantly. So by the mid 1890s, uh, many medical authors were promoting increasingly extremist attitudes around what was known as the theory of degeneration. Uh, Degeneration theory was a collection of of concerns and assumptions and fears and conjectures that centred on the idea that the human race, rather than evolving in a positive direction, as the eugenicists would like, uh, however we would conceive of that, was actually degenerating and declining with increasing levels of inherited insanity, idiocy, and ultimately sterility. And those were the terms that they used in their their works. But uh, in my book, I argue that James um, at this stage became drawn in to take a stand against these ideas and their public dissemination, partly because of how... um, he felt they impacted him personally, but also because of the undertone of aggression and violence that was present in these discourses towards the turn of the century. So uh, to give an example, one particular author, um, an Austrian medic, Max Nordau, who was actually uh, published a book that was extremely popular in America It became a sort of cultural phenomenon. Uh, he talked about, um, in his Degeneration book, the need for the healthy to crush under their thumb uh, those who were labeled as degenerate, um, those who were deemed to be this tainted stock, and he described them in Elsewhere as antisocial vermin. So I traced uh, James's resistance to Nordau and others uh, in a series of book reviews and public lectures from this period where he draws attention to the stigmatizing nature of these cultural currents and he talks about um, how medical diagnoses have become clubs to knock men down with. And as I said above, um, when I talked earlier, I kind of also look at how James tried to dismantle some of the intellectual assumptions that underpinned this kind of socially divisive labelling and separation of society into the degenerate and the normal so the the title
0: of the book again is is William James M.D. and um, its um, perspective is uh, part of its perspective is uh, really showing that William James's early training as a physician um, and um, sort of uh, uh, evolving thinking about um, the nature of of health are central to understanding, um, him as, as a person, the development of his identity and, and the corpus of, of his work. Um, new, new books in medicine. I think we have listeners who are, uh, historians of medicine, um, and, and also listeners who, um, work in the healthcare professions. And I wondered if you might say a little bit about um why uh physicians or practicing healthcare professionals might want to read um
1: this perspective on william james thank you um for this question it's something i've thought about and i i really hope they do <laughs> they do want to read it um i think actually one way of characterizing my book uh for me is kind of as a, a book-long illness narrative um, so much of the source material I draw on gives James's account in his own words of what it meant to him to live with lifelong ill and health. Um, and I know you know more about this than me, but my understanding is that in contemporary medical training, such narratives are seen as useful resources for healthcare practitioners in terms of developing insights into the sensitivities and complexities of providing good care um, to their patients. And I also read recently that the increasing numbers of people are living and working with chronic disease. So. hopefully there is something of value in me bringing attention to these experiences of james because he thought very deeply about how for him um illness impacted his sense of self-worth um his relationship with family friends and potential romantic partners how it shaped and was shaped by his religious and ethical beliefs so and i think his um personal observations still have relevance today um But the other side of this, as you mentioned, is that James wasn't just a patient. He was also a doctor, um, although he never practiced in the conventional sense. And he was a doctor who lived through an incredibly important moment in the history of the modern medical project. He was basically, I like to talk about him as an eyewitness on the scene as as medical ideas and values acquired this really significant uh, political power and cultural authority. And he was fully aware of and an articulate commentator on this new power structure and its impact, um, primarily, as I just discussed, um, on the social position of those who are classed as invalids or mentally ill, but also on the freedoms of practitioners who wanted to operate outside of the medical orthodoxy. So I hope that in that sense as well, this book can provide um, some kind of thought-provoking Jamesian critique of certain aspects of Contemporary medical philosophy and, and practice.
0: Well, it certainly does, and um, I, uh, I, I hope um, that folks come across it via the, the our interview and and other channels and and pick up a copy. Um, I have come now to our traditional final question here on the New Books Network, um, and that is. Um, now that um, this project on William James is <clears throat> bound and making its way out in the world, um, what are you working on next?
1: So my longtime research interest is in the history and philosophy of health concepts. And in my current project, I'm looking specifically at different concepts of psychological health um, in early 20th century Britain. So uh, particularly how these were entangled with pedagogical theory and practice at the time and then what the consequences of that sort of entanglement were for how childhood and parenthood were understood so I don't know where that sounds a bit abstract um but, well, I, I promise it's more interesting than it sounds um what I mean so in, in practice what I'm doing is I'm reading sources which are things like child psychology and child psychiatry texts and parenting advice literature And looking for the explicit definitions or implicit definitions uh, of what it means to be a psychologically healthy person. uh, What did that actually entail? So what kinds of behaviours or characteristics um, were required of both the adult and the child doing the child rearing or educating? Um, At the beginning of the 20th century, these markers of what psychological health actually is and how we can recognise it were often framed in terms of self-control. So a psychologically mature and healthy person has the ability to exercise self-discipline in general, and especially to sort of control strong emotions. And I do actually go into this in my book on James because this corresponds to to his lifetime at this point and these ideas featured in his writings. But a little later on in the 20th century, the answer to this question, so what is psychological health, uh, starts to change. And so I'm exploring those changes and uh, what the broader cultural ramifications of those changes were.
0: Well, that sounds absolutely fascinating, Emma, and I hope you'll come back on the show and um, talk to us when that project is done. Um, We have been speaking with Emma Sutton about the wonderful new book, William James, M.D., Philosopher, Psychologist, Physician. Um, Thank you
1: all for listening. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on.